Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. This Sunday is the second to last Sunday of Epiphany. If you can believe it, we are almost into Lent, about a week and a half away. And uh, one of the things that... Well, the thing that we focus on today is, it's called in our Book of Common Prayer, World Mission Sunday. And our gospel passage focuses on the Great Commission of Jesus. So this morning, I want to give us a framework for how to think about and consider the Great Commission and why it's important for us. And as we look at our scripture passages this morning, let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. So in the gospel passage this morning from St. Matthew, our passage occurs after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then Jesus has told his disciples to go meet him up on a mountain that was in Galilee in the north. And it's there that we find our scene today, our passage. Jesus is on the mountain, and he says to them, All authority in heaven and upon the earth has been given to me. And this is the authority to rule, to reign, to restore, to overturn what had been ravaged by the kingdom of darkness. It was an authority to make the glory of God known. And the authority of the kingdom, uh, for the kingdom of God to rule and reign over all kingdoms, is now about to be extended to these 11 disciples. We saw what the end looks like um, in Casey's beautiful reading of Revelation uh, chapter 7. We get this glorious depiction of the heavenly throne room where we see uh, the worship of the heavens, all the redeemed. We saw a taste of of this kingdom of God in the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, in his death and in his resurrection. And even uh, last week when we talked about the healing of the the demoniac in the synagogue in Capernaum. And now the question is this. How, how are we going to see the authority of the kingdom of God extended over all the world, which is so deeply longing for its creator to rule and reign? How are we going to see the authority of the kingdom of God to rule and to reign extended over all creation that's been bound by the kingdom of darkness? And Jesus' answer to that question in this passage is what we call the Great Commission. One version of it says, um, or in the version that we read, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's a challenge with that translation. I mean, all of them are about the same. But it makes it sound like going is part of the command. But instead of a command, it's probably better to understand that Jesus is assuming that these disciples are going to be going. Uh, And as they are going, wherever they are going, 
The kingdom of God has potential to go with them. As they're going, wherever they're going, the kingdom of God has the potential to go with them. So the command isn't for the disciples to go. The command, the imperative here, is to make disciples of all nations. That can include going somewhere far off. It doesn't have to. The command is to make disciples. Evangelism and, and discipleship aren't supposed to be exclusive. But there is this emphasis on making disciples wherever we are traveling. And it's not uh, so much going to as many places as you can to make disciples. Uh, that would not be the command here. Um, so instead it's to wherever you are to make disciples. And how do they do this? First, they do it by baptizing people. And second, they make disciples by teaching others to obey all that Christ has commanded by baptizing and teaching. So Jesus, when he was alive, you know, his ministry only lasted three years. There's no way uh, in three years to address all uh, with co comprehensiveness the complexity of, of life circumstances that his followers are going to face. The apostles were commissioned for this work of carrying on and helping people follow Jesus. In, in all the complexities of life that they're going to face. The New Testament then becomes this teasing out of the gospel's commands. Uh, so if we ask, what does Jesus teach about X, Y, or Z? The, the teachings that are bound up in the New Testament become this teasing out of God's commands through Christ. And, and then an outline of the kingdom of God for people who are weary and longing for hope. The gospels and the epistles tease out the theology of Jesus for the next generation after Jesus is not there uh, present with them anymore. So his teaching continues through the apostles. The church had bound up all those things together, all those works, the writings, um, into collections that were to be circulated among the different churches. Even the book of Revelation, which is written last, probably last of all, Sometimes we can think it's to be read as this sort of eschatological treasure map where we locate worldly events and try and map them on the timeline of history. But the reality is the book of Revelation is meant to bind up the wounds of those who are undergoing suffering so that they can walk in the name of Jesus with a comfort of what is coming at the end, with a good vision of, of the kingdom of God. So as you go... Make disciples. Make disciples. When we think of what the church is to do, that is it. We are carrying the authority of Jesus, each one of us. We're carrying the authority of Jesus, and we're holding it out for people as a vision of life in the kingdom of God. And we're doing that with one another and with people whom God has entrusted to our care and stewardship in the household and outside the household. And the result of living out this great commission is, is creating a culture of the kingdom of God. We are creating a culture of the kingdom of God. So our aim is to grow as disciples of Jesus in the very specific stations and callings that you and I have in our lives. But then we're to invite others into that journey with us. This is where the, the discipleship and evangelism are not mutually exclusive. But I was thinking a lot about the Great Commission this week as I was praying about what to talk about. And, and I wanted to go back to 
some of the stories uh, from church history that had an impact on me. It was December of 2019. I started writing our ministry documents for what this church would look like, but, you know, uh, or what I hoped, or whatever, you know. And, and there was a couple of church uh, stories from church history that made an impact on me of what, what does evangelism look like uh, in this setting. And last Thursday, anybody know what feast day it was last Thursday? Well, it was Candlemas on Friday. Before that, the day before. No, he was a different day. Uh, it was it was a woman uh, uh, from a long time ago. Yes, Saint Bridget. Well done. Saint. It was Saint Bridget's feast day, and she influenced me greatly as I thought about what this church could become. She served as the abbess of Kildare over this mixed monastery of men and women. And I don't know if you know this, but actually along with St. Patrick, she's considered one of the two pillars of the Irish church. And what emerged from Irish Christianity was something very distinctive. Uh, the, the evangelism and discipleship efforts of St. Bridget and others who were discipling among the Celts, it was a very unique and distinct kind of Christianity that was spreading throughout the British Isles. While the Christianity that took root was thoroughly Catholic, um, it was on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, kind of like we talked on Friday about Syriac Christianity being on the outskirts of one end, Irish Christianity was on the other outskirts. Uh, and so there's actually parallels between them that I won't get into, but it is interesting. Now, how does evangelism happen in these places that are thoroughly pagan, um, spread across language groups, Rough terrain, different tribes, separated throughout different islands. And we know more about the day-to-day. We don't know as much about the day-to-day. We know more about the monasteries than we do about day-to-day life of the laity. But what we do know is there was a culture of collegiality, a culture of shared ministry, ministry leadership. There was a great emphasis on hospitality. There was an approachability with their pagan neighbors. And what was sort of surprising is there was a really robust, intentional way of following Christ. It was a little bit different than the Roman structures. Um, you know, if you've heard of the practice of confession, you know, going to somebody to make a confession, that actually originally wasn't Roman, that was Irish. Uh, and then the Romans took it and it became spread throughout Roman Catholicism, but originally it was unique to Irish Christianity. And so the whole idea of confession, there was a very robust intentionality to the ways that they followed Jesus. And, and so this piece of Catholic tradition, the Irish church, feels equal parts approachable and intentional to me with how they are training converts to follow Jesus. And not just what to think about him, but how to inhabit the faith. So in the Celtic way, the bishop was this apostolic figure, somebody who was sent. Um, any, any of the kids remember who our bishop is? Anybody remember his name? Nadia? Yep, Bishop Chris. So in our diocese, they don't send him along to different places to go start dioceses and monasteries. So that would be a little different. But this is, um, in Celtic Christianity, the bishop was an apostolic figure, somebody who was sent to start new things. Uh, sort of the OG of church planting. And so, 
after a group was established somewhere, uh, the process started of establishing a monastery, and that included a church as well that people could come to. The abbot or the abbess who was overseeing the monastery was fixed over that monastery, acting a lot like our bishop does today. And perhaps there were a few that were brought somewhere else to help with the load of discipling people. But then the bishop would move on to the next place. And this is how Christianity spread between tribe to tribe, language to language, island to island. It was missional. But it was missional in a way that prioritized spiritual formation and pastoral care. It prioritized spiritual formation and pastoral care. And there are stories of incorporating rhythms of hospitality, even amongst the different abbots and abbesses. Um, The early life of Bridget talks about her continually breaking bread and making butter for those who were visiting this monastery that she was overseeing. And tradition has it that when she was churning butter, she would always make 13 portions. Any of the kids know what 12 of them would have been for? Why would she make 12 12 butter portions? Where have we seen the number 12 before? Hmm. Levi. The The apostles. Yes. So in honor of the apostles, she would make 12 portions of butter. And one more in honor of Christ. That extra portion was always reserved for guests and the poor. And we have stories like that from Saints Columba, David, Aidan. Um, these are all Celtic missionaries, uh, or missionaries to the Celts. And what strikes me from these saints is that there's this robust culture of discipleship that combines generous hospitality with rigorous intentionality in discovering Jesus. Radical hospitality, rigorous intentionality in discovering Jesus. And as we learn faith and community, what are the habits and the practices that would help us to more deeply inhabit the faith in Christ that's been given to us through the apostles? And thinking about the Great Commission to his disciples and you know some of the ways that this happened among the Celts, I think that there are some principles for discipleship that our church would do well to heed um, as those who are actually theologically descended from that part of the Catholic tradition. When you read our intro to the Book of Common Prayer, it talks about some of this. First, we're called to make disciples. So if you have children, have you baptized them? And if not, are you working towards that with them? If they've been baptized, how, how is the, what is the intention in the ways that you are forming them now? And I, one of the things that I have loved about our formation group is um, we talked about songs that some of you sang at dinner time with your kids, you know. And I, and I love hearing the different things that all of our group are doing or have done to disciple, do discipleship within their household. And that, as we sort of rub shoulders and break bread with one another, we benefit from hearing about other people's intentionality and we grow together. Um, I love hearing the different ways that you do that. Outside your household, is there one person that you could name that you are actively discipling? Is there somebody that you can think, you know, that's somebody I have intentionally poured into or am pouring into? I think the quality of discipleship can look different depending on 
the setting that we're in versus other churches as we take into consideration our theology, liturgy, our history, our size, capacity. Um, we have in the Anglican tradition this robust tradition of what's called asceticism in our history, which you can think of as like training, pra- training and practices for spiritual growth in Christ. We have this robust tradition of training and practices of spiritual growth in Christ. It, we have daily offices, daily prayer times. We have fasting days. We have feasting days. Days that are set aside just to pray for God to bless the agriculture of the land. Days to pray for those who are seeking holy orders in ordination. All kinds of tools in the Book of Common Prayer. And settling into those rhythms reframes how we live, and I think it's really countercultural in our context. As we slow down, as we enter into almost monastic rhythms, for our context, discipleship could look as simple as inviting somebody to join you into some of those rhythms. So as you go, as you do, invite somebody along with you for the journey. And I know, um, because I also have a small child, I know there are seasons that might feel particularly Um, chaotic and out of sorts and so you know these are seasons but setting aside the season that you're in what is the rhythm of our life with God if you were to write that down each week now I take Sunday morning and I kind of look a couple weeks ahead and block out what do I need so that people can have my time and I don't have to be thinking about I should be doing this or that so I block out whatever admin time sermon planning time. That way, when you schedule a time with me, I am yours for that hour, right? As you think about your life with God, is there an intentionality to say, here are the parts of my day, Lord, uh, take them. And in the midst of the other parts that are sort of out of control, do we have rhythms to address those, to pray, um, you know, Lord Jesus, save me, right? Help me not to sin. Whatever it is, uh, are there rhythms that we have of intentionality for the things we can control and the things that we can't. What are the rhythms of our household? There's a writer, Father Greg Peters, who wrote a book a long time ago called The Monkhood of All Believers. Maybe you've heard the very um, Reformation saying of priesthood of all believers, so it's a play on this. The Monkhood of All Believers. And part of that premise is that if monasticism is this singular vision of Christ, of following Christ, then all believers are called to a level of monasticism. Our book of common prayer, I think, actually follows this thought. And you can think of the book of common prayer then as a form of ascetic living for ordinary folks. It's a form of ascetic living for ordinary folks. How do I become more like Jesus? Learn to speak the language of the prayer book. It is a language to learn which itself is a way of understanding and praying the scriptures. And if you read through the baptism liturgy, you are going to learn about following Jesus. If you read through the marriage liturgy, you will learn about following Jesus. If you pray the great litany, you will begin to care about all the things that God does. And you'll probably learn some things that God cares about that you didn't think he cared about. If you pray the daily office, that chaos of your day, is going to be interrupted and hopefully reframed by moments of centeredness as you enter into the sanctuary of God, the sanctuary in time. And as you do those things, invite other people along with you 
uh, for the journey. This was one of the powerful things in my life. In seminary, there was a guy who was exploring Anglicanism at the same time I was. We would just take over. There was an old Orthodox chapel in the, the bookstore at my seminary. It was no longer an Orthodox church. The bookstore bought it, but they kept the chapel in the back. So we would do the daily office in the back. We were both fumbling our way through it, and it was really formative. You don't have to be perfect or put together. You just have to be attentive, consistent, and invitational. So like the Celts, don't forget hospitality. I remember several years ago, we were living in Arlington, and we had done this really fun small group idea where we literally just had neighbors over for dinner. Uh, We had some discussion questions so that we could start to get to know our neighbors. And it was great. I mean, a lot of them were Christians. Some of them weren't. On any given week, um, our Guatemalan neighbors from downstairs would come up. The wife didn't speak English. The two kids were very sweet. And they ended up being Christians. And they asked if I would uh, talk some time to their church about church history. And he would translate it into Spanish, um, which was cool. We had another couple who went to a really large church. Uh, one gal who was at our church at the time. And then there was a couple from downstairs who were at least culturally Ethiopian Orthodox. Um, And then there was another neighbor, and I really don't know what she believed, Um, but it was interesting. And we got to talk about politics. We got to talk about religion. We just got to talk about life together. And, of course, like sort of complaining about whatever was outside that we all had to deal with, right? Like there was this shared experience as neighbors, But extending hospitality is so crucial for extending the kingdom of God because it helps us listen for where the Holy Spirit's at work in the lives of ourselves and in the lives of other people. Hospitality is that means of listening to the Holy Spirit. And so I would love to become a church where discipleship was characterized by lives transformed by the grace of God through through healthy ascetic habits and genuine hospitality. I think that does characterize a lot of what we do, but to grow even more into it, becoming a church where discipleship is characterized by lives transformed by the grace of God through healthy ascetic habits and genuine hospitality. And that's because as people, we discover God's grace in prayer. Others are going to discover it in them as well. And I think our neighbors long for this vision of the good life that Jesus' authority Uh, promises, and they long for God's grace and God's kindness, whether or not they know it. Uh, But may we be formed by the grace of Jesus and bring others along as we are being formed. Some people are going to go to far nations. There are some who are discerning calls to overseas missions. Um, And that is a good thing. And and many of us will encounter the nations next door. Um, I mean, there are how many nations represented in this church building? Right? Um, we will encounter the nations where we live. But our apostolic call in any case, as Christians, is to be formed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then to open those stories up, uh, stories of grace up for others. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we praise you for the redemption of the world through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for pouring out your spirit upon us, making some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip your people for the building up of the body of Christ. Bless this work 
that we have undertaken in starting this church. That your name may be glorified now and forever. Amen. Thank you.